One of the things I talk to lawyers about all the time in law firms is you're through the mediation process. What you're doing is you are managing a situation that's going to probably happen anyway. How open are they to that typically? I mean, some of the insurance carriers, just as a matter of policy, are, for example, reluctant to participate in any kind of court-ordered mediation. I see that routinely, and it is astonishing to me that somehow doesn't inure to their detriment. It goes back and forth. I've seen insurers have wild swings over the years. Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. Today, our guest is Douglas Furlong, Esquire. Welcome to the show, Mr. Furlong. Thank you, Bob. Happy to be here. As always for our audience, we are not intending to impart legal advice when we discuss legal matters on this show. We want to give people interesting things about the law and about lawyers, but if you have an individual legal situation, you really need to marshal the facts and speak to an attorney about your individual situation so you can get the best advice. In a similar vein, the opinions and advice, non-advice that is offered on this show is not intended to be that of Howard County Community College, its faculty, its staff, its students, or its administration. And with those caveats, let's dig into the heart of the matter. Mr. Furlong, what is that you do for a living? Well, I've been a lawyer, practicing lawyer since 1987. Okay. And most of that time, I was doing civil litigation of all different kinds. So if people needed someone to go into court and tell their side of a dispute, that's what I did. And it really always ran the gamut. It could be uh, serious business disputes. It could be uh, serious personal injury or wrongful death. It could be different kinds of malpractice cases. It could be business divorces, which I've done so many of, and everything in between. So it was a very varied practice because of the firm that I was at. We were not captive to any insurers or anything like that. I was able to do work on both the plaintiff side and the defendant side regularly throughout my career, which made, kept things interesting and, and I think probably made me a better lawyer because I was constantly being exposed to folks who were just as part of their DNA, they, they tend to see disputes differently. And they were my clients. So it was a very varied practice. But along the way, Bob, in the mid-90s, I was part of the first group of lawyers in Maryland to be trained as a mediator. Okay. And I kind of fell into that. I, I, it looked interesting to me. And I went through the training, which was, it's pretty extensive in Maryland to get approved and found that I enjoyed it. And I felt that I was pretty good at it in terms of working with people, colleagues who would hire me to help them get their cases settled, other fellow lawyers. And then the courts would refer cases as well. And recently, in the last year or so, I've stopped my litigation work and I'm working full-time uh, in my own firm, Furlong ADR, it's called, providing mediation and arbitration services. So that's how I got to where I am now. If I'm interested as a hypothetical client in locating your Furlong ADR services, is there a web address? Is there some mechanism? Yeah, I've got a website and people can go there if they just punch in Furlong ADR. I think I'll be the, the one that pops up first. Okay. And I've got a lot of information on there about me, about my background, about my approach to mediation, because mediators do bring different approaches depending on the types of things that they're mediating. And so for me, my typical mediation has represented parties and they tend to be 
mediating cases that are often on the complex side, multi-party cases, a fair amount of high dollar cases. So, because that's really consistent with what I always did as a lawyer. So, you know, hopefully I'm bringing a perspective to those cases of having done that for 30 plus years and knowing what matters to them. So how do you get the word out to prospective clients about your existence? Well, I've been doing it for a long time. I've sure. over the years, I started in the mid nineties and it eventually Bob became maybe 20, 25% of my time was wow. spent doing these either through court referrals or like I said, colleagues just contacting me. And, and it's really word of mouth. My client base is not so much the parties in these disputes, it's their lawyers. Okay. And so, you know, the Maryland, Baltimore area, Howard County, Baltimore City legal community is a pretty tight group. And so if you've been practicing since the mid 80s, as I have in this area, geographic area, you tend to know a lot of people. And so it's like anything else. If you do a good job, you'll get repeat business. And if you hopefully have a reputation for being a straight shooter, someone that can be trusted with a dispute and who brings a sensibility to it that's practical, which I've found that, that my colleagues, that's really what they're looking for, is how do we get to a practical resolution of this dispute? Because I don't know what your experience has been with litigation, but I found over the years, as the burdens of discovery became greater and so forth, that the expense and cost was going up. And litigation is really a very inefficient way to get to an answer, isn't it? Um, yeah, I concur wholeheartedly. Yeah, it really can be. It can be super expensive. It could take a long time. And for most cases, you look at the facts, you get a sense of the case, and you can usually anticipate pretty well what will likely happen if in a particular jurisdiction, if that case goes to trial. And so if you accept that as a premise, then mediation gives you an off-ramp that is a way to spend a lot less money, frankly, and hopefully get to approximately the same result, maybe the same result through a negotiated process with the help of your mediator. So, you know, more and more, when I, when I first started doing it, mediation in the mid nineties was new. Uh, it started mostly out on the West coast and so forth. And then some good folks like Roger Wolf at the law school started sure. mediation program and built that out of the community mediation program, but then it morphed into what I do. And, you know, back then you'd have to explain to good practicing lawyers, you know, the difference between mediation and arbitration and so forth. Not anymore. You know, lawyers now view it as another tool in the toolbox. So that's a long answer to your short question. No, I, I'm, I'm interested in that because one phenomenon, and I've been a personal injury lawyer for 40 years and 51 weeks. So I've seen a span of changes in the insurance industry and they go through cycles where they seem interested in settling cases. But I also see this sort of small and medium case being systematically decreased in value through a variety of measures undertaken by the insurance industry, including the use of house counsel offices. You know, they're no longer sending out to private attorneys. They're just overwhelming their poor house counsel offices who then really can't do in my view, a legally sufficient job in a lot of cases. And I wonder how you go about overcoming sort of systemic intransigence on the part of insurance companies to paying, you know, something in the, at least the continuum, the low continuum of what a jury would likely award. 
That's a great question. And what it really calls up is what's happened in this country in the last 30 or so years in the legal profession. When you and I first started, you know, a typical personal injury case, maybe it's a rear end case, soft tissue, nothing broken, but some real injury and some treatment and so forth. You know, there was basically a rule of three. So you right. you take the specials in the case, the bill, the, the medical bills, and maybe some lost wages, whatever it is, you triple that number. And that would be kind of a somewhat of an expectation of what could happen. So the lawyer typically is on a one-third contingency. So you'd have to pay back some of those medical bills in all likelihood. The lawyer would take a third, and then the rest would be there for the client. And everybody kind of understood the working assumption. And then I found in my practice, doing it on both sides, because I was doing it on the defense side for some clients who were self-insured, and then on the plaintiff side for my clients, that the tort reform juggernaut in this country started to convince jurors in Maryland and elsewhere that there was a lot of real frivolous litigation going on. You remember the poor woman who had the coffee spill in her lap at McDonald's, and I think that she got a jury award of you know some seven-figure award. And that was reported out as an example of what's wrong with the tort system in this country. But if you really dig into what happened in that case, McDonald's really was terribly negligent in that case. She also suffered third degree burns that were extremely serious. She had to have, I think, several skin graft operations, et cetera, et cetera. It was a real matter, but it became almost a punchline. It did. And and if you do that enough, it filters down into the sensibility of your jurors. And so what started to happen is that jurors in different places, including around Maryland, would have that same case that we talked about before. And the rule of three went out the window. And let's say this, the medical bills and specials, Bob, were $10,000 in the case. You know, they'd award $12,000 and think that they've done right by that plaintiff. And you know, that started to happen more and more. And I think we still kind of find ourselves there. And so as a mediator, you know, I take into account a lot of things. I take into account where the case is likely to be tried sure. or will be tried, because that tells me something about what jury verdicts are doing there. You take into account all the typical things, you know, how's the plaintiff present? How's the defendant present? Is liability really disputed, et cetera, et cetera. And then during the mediation process, uh, people usually want to know, you know, my perspective on the case. And I, for one, am a mediator that's not shy about giving that. I think that's one of the reasons why they hire me, you know, because I do have a perspective and they can take it or not, but I do have a, a, a perspective. And the one thing I will say about trials is that it is true that you never really know what's going to happen because the big unknown is who's going to actually be sitting in that jury box. So you may get a different outcome depending on the backgrounds of those jurors. If you have six people who are engineers, I'm going to say that you're going to get a different verdict in that case than, I've had that. than if you had six <laughs> uh, school teachers on that jury. You know, so that's the great unknown in every jurisdiction. So as a mediator, we talk about that and say, yeah, we think we can predict. But you never know. What I always say to people in mediation is that 
in all likelihood, their case is going to get settled because 98% or so of the cases get settled. The, the, the ones that don't settle, usually there's some truly some principle at stake. They really do have to try the case unless it's just people with wildly different views of a likely outcome then usually somebody is terribly disappointed <laughs> when that case goes to trial. True. But most cases will settle. And since you know that the case is going to settle. Why not settle in now? Well, it's also, but in a process that's managed, as opposed to on the eve of trial, where maybe everybody's kind of back is against the wall. Maybe by that point, an expert that you thought you'd be able to put on just called and said that, you know, he has appendicitis and he's not going to be able to make it. You know, all sorts of weird things can happen that can all of a sudden drastically affect your ability to settle the case in a range that it should settle. With mediation, you know, you're usually months away from your trial. You can take a deep breath and you can manage this process with the help of a mediator, a process that's likely going to happen anyway. So would you rather have a managed process or a hurried process that likely has things that you weren't anticipating happening now that happened and now the assessment maybe has changed. So that's one of the things I talk to lawyers about all the time and law firms is you're through the mediation process. What you're doing is you are managing a situation that's going to probably happen anyway. How open are they to that typically? I mean, some of the insurance carriers, just as a matter of policy, are, for example, reluctant to participate in any kind of court-ordered mediation. I see that routinely, and it is astonishing to me that somehow doesn't inure to their detriment. It goes back and forth. I've seen insurers have wild swings over the years. I remember talking to a couple of them back in the 90s, let's say, about this. And some of them had that policy, then it wasn't working out real well. So they switched the other way. We're going to mediate all the cases. Then they switched the other way. And it's kind of like this, you know, pinball effect. And you're right. Sometimes it doesn't work out real well. But if they have some verdicts that they consider to be bad verdicts enough, then it tends to hit the bottom line enough that they start to change your thinking. But it is what it is. I mean, there are certainly insurers that I've mediated for in Maryland. And when I say mediated for they're one, they've got the defendant in the case. You're a neutral. I'm a neutral. I don't mediate for anybody per se. But then there's others that are kind of reluctant, certainly to take a court-referred mediator. But then down the road, they'll hire a mediator. And that's happened with me, where they passed on a court-referred mediator that probably would have been okay, would have been fine. Sure. So I don't know if there's always a rhyme or reason to how that plays out. Across the span of doing this show, it seems to me that there are different perceptions on things. And so we recently had a fine attorney from Baltimore, Marianne Alexander of Wilson Elzeron, and she's doing a presentation at the MSBA summit down in Ocean City, kind of about how to, we talked about reptile, you know, and it's something our audience has only gained familiarity with in passing. And she talked about it in more in detail. And it was kind of a fascinating thing because her theme is nuclear verdicts and kind of excessive verdicts and how to curtail them and how to reduce the use of reptile and all that sort of stuff. And yet it simultaneously flies in the face of the perception, I think overall, that the insurance industry has, like you were saying, it used to be three times specials. Now it may be if State Farm offer is 1.2 times specials, you know, $12,000 offer on a $10,000 case. 
when State Farm knows very well if a lawyer takes the third, then the client is actually going to lose money by settling the case. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that there are such widely differing perceptions that we're going to have a bar conference where one of the talks, and I'd be fascinated to go to it in all honesty, is that there's these large verdicts that kind of need to be controlled. And I guess it harkens back to what you were talking about earlier. Our audience probably isn't familiar with tort reform. I wonder if you could kind of talk briefly about what that was, what effect it's had, and how you perceive it continues in the present. Tort reform is somewhat of a euphemism. Tort reform is a term that was created by the defense bar and insurers, because everybody, who's against reform, right? right. So it's, it's a nice term. But what it really meant was we need to do something about the perception, at least, that, they, that was there, that there were runaway verdicts. And certainly, the, you know, from time to time, you do see a runaway verdict, and more so back then. But in some respects, they threw the baby out with the bathwater because you started to have things occur in different states, including in Maryland. For example, caps on non-economic losses is a product of tort reform. And, and tort reform really is a, is a legislative effort. Tort reform was a way for the defense bar to try to get legislation on the books that would curtail large verdicts. And so, for example, in Maryland, what they did is they passed caps for non-economic damages. Could, could you just explain to our audience, which may not be as legally sophisticated, what when you talk about caps on non-economic damages, what you mean? Sure. So if you have a serious case, and let's say there's a, a 15-year-old young lady who's involved in a car accident, it's not her fault, a drunk driver crossed the center line. Her car exploded and went on fire, and now she has burns over, you know, 80% of her body, including on her face, okay? Horrific case. The way the caps work in Maryland is there's legislation on the books that says, okay, if she files a lawsuit against that drunk driver, she can recover her medical bills. If she has lost wages, she can recover that. If she has anticipated future medical bills, she can recover that. That's fine, dollar for dollar. Unlimited. But for the pain and suffering that she has endured and will endure for the rest of her life, we're going to put really an arbitrary number on it. It started out as in the, I think, late 80s, Bob, or early 90s at $350,000. I remember it well. And it's now, I think there's a formula where it goes up every single year by, I think, 15% or something like that. And so I don't have it off the top of my head. You probably know better than I what it is now, but it might be 700 and something thousand dollars. It's now. more than that now, although there's a different number for medical malpractice cases as distinguished yeah. from personal yeah. injury cases, but yes. Yeah. And so the point is, is that let's assume it's, it's $800,000. Sure. You know, a jury may look at that and say, wow, this young lady is 15 years old. She has another 70 years to live in what is now this terribly mangled condition. The doctors have done all they can do. There's nothing else they can do. And the jury in that case, frankly, it's a pretty horrific case. The jury in that case may have come in and given her a several million dollar verdict. But in Maryland, the law says, well, for that part of the verdict, we're going to cap it. And so when lawyers talk about caps, they're talking about that arbitrary number that's been established in Maryland for these cases. And that young lady in that case, even though there may be a jury verdict 
So there may be a headline in the Baltimore Sun that says that the jury awarded this lady, young lady, $8 million. Sure. Well, guess what? The real verdict is going to, the, the amount she's actually going to get is going to be those medical bills plus the cap amount. And so let's say in this case, if she had $100,000 in medical bills and the cap amount's $800,000, that $9 million verdict that you read about in the Baltimore Sun will end up being a $900,000 verdict. That seems like that penalizes the most catastrophically injured people. And some years ago, I actually was on the brief. My law firm did a case to challenge the cap. Right. And we were not successful, even though Judge Murphy had written at the time the cap was challenged years before that, he had written a really heartfelt dissent. And no one would call Judge Murphy a plaintiff's lawyer. No Uh, one would. But he wrote a heartfelt dissent that made exactly your point. He said, what we're doing here is we're penalizing the people who are hurt, who need the judicial system the most to get on with their lives. And those people are being penalized. So that, at least in Maryland, the main product of tort reform is those caps on non-economic damages. But they're there. And so when I'm mediating case, and the cap will turn on when the injury happened, not when the case is tried. Okay. So if a case has been in litigation for three or four years, I've got to go look at the cap table to tell me what cap applies. But that becomes a big part of the discussion because, you know, I may have a plaintiff's attorney saying, this is a $5 million case. And I'm in the mediation saying, well, not so fast. I'm looking at your specials here. They add up to, you know, $200,000. Unless there's something I'm missing, you're going to have a cap here, right? So really, this case, your best day in court is not $5 million. It's much less than that, compliments of the Maryland legislature. So One of the things that has always perturbed me about the cap, and there are many things, is that you can't tell the jury. And so I've gone to trial in cases mm-hmm. where the cap was applicable and where the battlefield that I'm disagreeing with defense counsel is whether my client's future medicals and future rehabilitation costs and loss of future family services, which are economic damages and are not limited, should be $2.3 million or their projection of 1.1. And what I've found is that sometimes juries will add them up, divide them in half, give me 1.7 or something, and then give me a huge pain and suffering figure. And my position, and I've argued this unsuccessfully Mm -hmm. in Circuit Court Prince George's County, is I should be able to tell the jury that there is a cap. You know, it's Definitely. an artifice that they may think a case is worth $7 million in pain and suffering in, in after hearing all the evidence. And of course, the judge always has the opportunity to throw the verdict out or to reduce the verdict. And it just seems to me patently unfair that a jury is ignorant of the effect of their verdict. Yeah, I think that that's a valid point. So let's turn to your impending presentation at the Maryland State Bar Association Summit in June. I understanding you're doing it in conjunction with another presenter. Yes, Jeff, Jeff Truman, who's an excellent mediator. And Jeff and I have teamed up on this. And the title of the presentation is Digging Deep into How Attorneys Get the Most Out of Their Mediators. And this is a follow-on program from one I did last year at the bar convention, which was how attorneys get 
the best results for their clients in mediation. So really from the attorney standpoint, what should attorneys be doing? Because what I've found over the years of seeing a lot of good attorneys come through with me, many hundreds of mediations that I've done, that being a really good accomplished trial lawyer is not necessarily putting you in a position to get a great result at your mediation. There are somewhat different skill sets and different ways you have to think about these two processes, both of which can result in the same thing, a great result for your client if done properly. And so the program I did last year was just an overview. You know, do this, don't do that. Definitely don't do that. Definitely do this. And when you're thinking about mediation, preparing for mediation, preparing your client for mediation, preparing your mediation materials, mediation statements for your mediator, and then how you conduct yourself once you're there. And it's just a lot of practical tips. And that was a very well-received program at the MSBA. And, and I created kind of a truncated version of it that a lot of my colleagues in the bar have asked me to come present at their law firms, which I've done multiple times. I think this week I'm doing one at uh, Wiper Taylor Preston. Can one find these things on the web somewhere? There is a written version of some of it on my website, but I've not posted the slides per se, but people can certainly call me if they'd like to talk about any of it, or I'm happy. There's no cost. I don't, it's a free presentation I do at law firms and I've done it at many, many firms because they either caught wind of it or they saw me at the MSBA and they wanted to hear more. So As a follow-on to that, Jeff and I were talking about that program, and he said, what if we put one together that really talks about the interaction between the lawyer and the mediator? Kind of like a, it's digging down on one of the aspects of the earlier program, and that's what this program is. And there are three questions that we address in this program that we'll be doing in June at the Bar Convention. So the first is, what are you purchasing when you hire a mediator? And I realize that the concept of, gee, what are you purchasing will grate on the ears of some ADR professionals. So say, well, we're professionals. You're not purchasing us. We're not a commodity. Okay, I disagree. You're purchasing a service. Absolutely. Okay, you're purchasing a service provider. And that provider, if done properly, is going to help you get to a decision point in your case. And the provider is going to be doing the same thing for the other side helping them to get to a decision point in the case. So the provider's doing it for both sides, but make no bones about it. You're purchasing a service. And so you definitely want the best equipped provider for your particular case. The second question was how to assess whether a mediator is going to be effective. And the third question is how to use the mediator to get the best result once you're in your mediation. And so the focus of this program It's designed for busy litigators who find themselves in mediation all the time. It's designed for cases where, let's face it, the the primary concern of the plaintiffs is that they want to get as much of their money as for their client as they can. And for the defense is to pay as little as possible. You know, I'm very clear eyed about this. And, you know, that people in those types of cases, they're really not there to be transformed, quote unquote. They're there to accomplish a financial outcome, usually, that is as good or better than they think they're going to get if they try the case, taking into account what it's going to cost you to get to trial and and the risk of different outcomes at trial, et cetera, et cetera. 
And so the takeaway from the program really, Bob, is that the lawyers who are proactive in terms of how they think about mediation are the ones that I've seen tending to get the best results for their clients in that process. The ones who really think about it. And it starts with, you know, who you're going to use as your mediator and and what are you looking for from that mediator? And again, I'm very clear-eyed about this stuff. Try to be practical. So the facts matter and the law matter. You know, if I've got someone coming in, for example, the plaintiff's lawyer coming in, in that hypothetical we discussed earlier, talking to me about a $5 million verdict in a case that's going to be capped at $900,000, the law matters. Facts matter. Absolutely. That that needs to be discussed in that mediation. Otherwise, it's just a waste of everybody's time. I'm looking forward to the presentation. It's funny, one of the big themes this year, and perhaps it's perennially so, there's a lot of ADR and mediation presentations that are being done at the summit this year. And I think it's kind of interesting to see, and it's something we've done a, a good deal on in this show, to see people's different perspectives on it and what they find effective and kind of their attitudes about it all. And so I'll be fascinated to see yours and a number of others that we're going to see. I'm afraid we do have to wind up the show at this point, but I very much enjoyed making your acquaintance, Doug. We hadn't known each other before and we've kind of been moving in the same sphere, I think. And you'll be down in Ocean City. So I'll look you up when I'm down there. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing you down there. And anybody who's interested in this stuff, come by the program. It'll be a good discussion. Thank you very much. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.